Last Sunday, we returned to the Psalms after taking a six-week um, excursus, looking through the doctrine of the Bible and the scriptures and the authority of God's Word. And we then returned to the third book of Psalms. And, and by way of review, the compiler of the Psalms arranged them in, in five clear divisions, five books of the Psalms. The first two heavily um, authored by David are called the books of David. And in book three, um, the first 11 Psalms are written by Asaph, or possibly a choir or, or psalter group he's, he started. Um, First Chronicles references him. He's a contemporary of David. And so last week we looked at Psalm 73 where Asaph very honestly, very plainly admits to and deals with his own struggle with envy and discontent and discouragement over watching the success of the ungodly and the apparent um, difficulty of the godly. And once again, Asaph is dealing with discouragement. Um, this third book of the Psalter is very heavily themed with lament, with pouring out the heart to God. In fact, most of the six Psalms we're to look at will have that theme in common. Um, this one is no exception. And so I just want to say a few things about that before we dive in. That a third to half of the Psalms can rightly be classified as lament. That means out of the 150 Psalms that we have, somewhere between 50 and to 75, depending on how you classify them, um, deal with sorrow, deal with loss, deal with anguish, and wrestling with God with that. And I just want to make a few observations from that alone, which is obviously then this is something that God recognizes his people are going to wrestle with at various seasons of their life. If you're not currently now discouraged, rejoice, but if you live long enough, you will be at some point, or someone you know will be. Now, the, the, the prevalence of this theme indicates this is something God's people again and again are going to struggle with. And so the good news is God has given us much instruction. And, and again, one of the unique things about the Psalms is whereas in the rest of the Bible, it's, it's God talking directly to man. In the Psalms, we get to listen in, as it were, as spirit-filled godly men and women pray to God. We get to watch how people directed and moved by the Holy Spirit deal with their various emotional states. And so today we're going to see how does a godly person wrestle with intense anguish, the feeling of being deserted by God. How, how does a saint, how does one of God's people do that? And, and so the Psalms then become a roadmap for the various um, responses in life. God has given us 150 songs showing us how godly people rejoice, how godly people suffer, how godly people cry out for help. And so this morning, we're going to look at remembering God in the day of trouble. Remembering God in the day of trouble. Let's read Psalm 77 in its entirety. A Psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Salah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let, my, 
Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Salah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Joseph, Salah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, before we dive in and look at this sort of stanza by stanza, there's one other thing I want you to notice here, and, and that is this psalm is structurally, it's a V. The first nine verses are a steep descent down into discouragement, culminating in those six despairing questions, ending in verse 9. And then, like a miracle, pivoting on verses 10 through 12, the psalmist rockets out of this despair with exultant praise. And so as I'm reading this psalm, I, I want to know, how, how does he do it? How does a man go from questioning God's goodness, questioning God's faithfulness, questioning God's word, to praise in just a few verses? And so that's the big thing to look for here. How, how does Asaph go from right up on the edge of despair, questioning God's very character, to the praise that we see coming out the other side, starting in verse 13? How does that happen? And how can we do that? How can you and I battle our discouragement this way? How can we help others to do this? Um, that's what we're going to try to see. And so we're looking at remembering God in the day of trouble. Remembering God in the day of trouble. I've broken this into six sections. Um, we're going to look at the first in your notes. And the first blank there is we're going to see Asaph crying out to God both day and night, crying out to God for both day and night, verses one through two. The Hebrew is emphatic. Literally, what he says is, my voice to God, a cry, my voice to God. I cry aloud to God and he will hear me. The day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And so he's crying out to God. We aren't sure what his situation is. It appears to be individual. I, 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 he never switches to the plural we's, um, except possibly a little later in one verse. And so it seems so Asaph is in some day of trouble, his day of trouble. We don't, we don't know what that means. And I think that suggests then that this is meant to be appropriated by all of God's people in their day of trouble, in their distress, whatever that is, financial distress, 
health distress. This could just be severe depression. We're, we're to look at this, and Asaph is suffering symptoms of what clinically would be diagnosed as depression. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't explain what's going on with himself. And so Asaph is in great turmoil. But the first thing to note is this. He's crying out to God. He's, he's not seeking relief from any other source. And we've seen this already in previous psalms, that when we are discouraged, when we are depressed, we go to God, not away from him. We call out to God. We don't hide from him. And so our first recourse in discouragement must be to turn to God. And Asaph's just crying out, literally with a loud voice. And, and let none of us here be too proud to cry out to God for help when we need it. According to Hebrews chapter 5, our Lord Jesus Christ did this very thing. In Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. See, Jesus cried out to God with loud cries when he needed help. And so, let none of us be too proud that we would follow suit. We, God wants us, like, like children, to call out for him, Father, I need help. And Asaph's doing that. And he's doing it day and night. He's not just doing it once, but he does it continually. And then that leads to point B. Our prayers must be as persistent as our sorrow. Part of what makes Asaph's sorrow so difficult is he's been crying out to God for a long time. And, but his sorrow persists. Day and night, his soul refuses to be comforted, but yet he keeps crying out to God. He doesn't say, well, I tried that once, it didn't work, so I'll try something else. He just keeps on knocking at that door. He keeps on asking. And as Jesus promised, ask and you'll receive, knock and it'll be opened unto you, seek and you will find. And Asaph is persistent. As long as his sorrow endures, he keeps seeking and crying out to God. And that's God's promise to us that if we will persist in, in seeking him, he will be found. And it may not be the first time. It may not be the second time. Asaph here, night and day, crying out to God. But he, he knows there's no place else to look. He knows there's no other relief to be found. Which brings us now to our second point, remembering brighter days with God. Remembering brighter days with God, verses 3 to 6. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Salah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. And I said, let me remember my song of the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And so what he's doing now is he's remembering... It's drawing to mind, you notice those words repeated, verse 3, I remember, I meditate, verse 6, I remember. He's bringing to mind his experience with God. And but what's happening here is, is as he's remembering his prior experience of God's mercy and grace, it actually makes things worse. It actually increases his discouragement. Um, sometimes remembering better times, remembering those times when your walk with the Lord was strong, when you used to love to read the Bible, when you felt God's nearness, when you saw his hand at work in your life. And if you don't see that in your life now, and it's been a long time since you have, sometimes remembering those things can actually bring discouragement. And that's what happens here. Asaph is remembering, bringing to mind, and he's so troubled, in fact, he can't sleep. Again, this is why I say you could almost define this as clinical depression. He's unable to sleep. In verse 4, 
I'm so troubled I cannot speak. You know, he couldn't explain Asaph. Why are you upset? He, he can't put it into words. His soul, his spirit is fainting in verse 3. He tries to remember his song in the night. He tries to remember nights when he'd be singing psalms, going to sleep with them in his head. And he's just confused and in turmoil. He's in confusion. Sometimes good memories can discourage us further. And sometimes, in great sorrow, we must search our own hearts. And this is where Asaph goes to next. He, he doesn't understand what's going on. He can't put it into words. He can't sleep. And so he ends this section by saying that his heart, made, my spirit, made a diligent search. Which I take to mean that he's, he's examining his own thoughts and motives. What is going on within me? Which leads him then to ask six discouraging questions. Asking six discouraging questions. And this is really the low point of the psalm. So to sort of track the movement, he's crying out to God, he's crying out to God. No answer. At least none that he can discern. Then he remembers his past interactions with God. And it brings him lower. And his, his, his anxiety and his sorrow rises. He can't sleep. He, he can't speak. He, he still can't put it into words. And so he begins to search his own heart. And like the psalmist in Psalm 139, who cries out, Oh God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He's making a search of what, what is going on in my heart. Um, which brings us to point A. We must learn to be honest with God about our struggles. Now, the next six questions that Asaph is about to ask, if we can get the, yeah, we got the PowerPoint on. Um, the next six questions that Asaph is about to ask um, really are right up to the verge of, of despair. But I want you to recognize the freedom that he has to be honest with God. If you're thinking these things, don't hide them in any pious language. Don't attempt to pretend you're not. And, and spirit-filled people can ask questions like, will the Lord spurn forever? Will the Lord reject me, keep me at arm's length forever? Now, that's, that's a serious question to ask. Or, will he never be favorable again? Now, there was a time where I remember God's favor. It's been a long time since I've experienced that. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? That word steadfast love is, is God's special, loyal, gospel love. I mean, you might as well ask, has the gospel broken? Has God's covenant promised love ceased, broken? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God become a liar? I know he promised things, but what if he stopped keeping his promises? And finally, has God forgotten to be gracious? What if grace is dried up? What if the last drop of God's grace was poured out in my life three years ago and now there's no more? And I don't want you to brush over these as hyperbole. These are serious questions that people, godly people, can wrestle with and be in anguish about. Um, and, and Asaph is wrestling with this and, and trying to put this into words and this is really the result of his own soul searching as after he searches his heart what he finds in his heart is this but putting it into words is a necessary step because point I here a doubt cannot be dealt with until it is made clear a doubt cannot be dealt with until it is made clear let me read to you one commentator's thoughts about this he says as terrible as these questions are even in this form it is better to ask them than to not ask them, because asking them sharpens the issue, 
pushes us towards the right. Positive response. Doubts are better put into plain speech than lying around, darkening us like poisonous mists in our heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. Formulating vague conceptions is like cutting a channel in a bog. What is impossible to deal with is dissatisfaction that will not express itself openly or submit to reason. And what he's saying is this. Sometimes in our discouragement, we don't even know what we're discouraged about. And like Asaph, we've got to search our heart. What, what is it that I'm wrestling with? Put it into words. Because once you put it into words, even if what you put into words is frightening, you can respond to that. You can deal with that with truth. But until you know exactly what's going on in your heart, you'll just know you feel down. You have this vague sense of unease. Put it into words. One of the first things I do when dealing with people with anxiety, discouragement, sorrow, is to get them to try to articulate in clear, simple words what exactly it is they're thinking, what exactly it is they're fearing, what exactly it is they are regretting. Putting it out clearly, as, as ugly as it might be, as dreadful as it might be, we have Asaph's model in doing this. Now, you could ask these six questions in a fist-raised-at-God type of way that would be wicked, but there's also an honest way, God, I... I, I know you promised some things in here, but it really looks to me like you're breaking your word. God, I know you promised mercy and, and, and grace, but I'm not seeing it. And there's a way we can humbly come to God and, and lay, out our, lay out our struggles. A doubt cannot be dealt with until it is made clear. Oftentimes, the first step is really identifying what's going on in our hearts concretely. Because then once they're out there, we can start responding to some of these things. The Bible has things to say to these questions. The Bible has answers to these questions. And we can begin to counsel our hearts with truth. But until we know what we're dealing with, we can't. It's like nailing jello to the wall. Next, the reason we can do this, and the reason Asaph can do this, is because God cares for and sympathizes with us. We learn to be honest with God about our struggles because he cares for us and sympathizes with us. Let me just read for you these wonderful verses in Hebrews 14 about our great Savior, Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I just want to point out a couple things from this passage. The writer of Hebrews puts it in a double negative. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. So if you let the negatives cancel each other out, what he's saying is we do have a great high priest who can and does sympathize with us. And the basis of his sympathy is his shared experience with us. We saw earlier, Jesus cried out to God the Father with a loud voice. Jesus was discouraged, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. So if we can come to God honestly admitting our struggles, he's not going to bark at us and how dare you think that. But... We're told here specifically in a time of need to come for mercy and grace to God's throne because we have a sympathetic high priest. 
And so Asaph is comfortable, is, is able to honestly unpack his heart to God. Humbly, like I said, you could, you could ask these questions in a fist-raised-at-God type of way. But you can also ask it in an honest, humble, broken way that doesn't dishonor God. And that God invites, and we have modeled here. And you see that what he really ends up questioning in these uh, six questions is God's nearness. God's rejected me. He shoved me away. He's questioning God's favor. Um, his love. His promise-keeping word. His grace. His compassion. I mean, he's really questioning who God is. He's really suggesting God has changed. I know who God used to be. But I really, I guess, in my heart of hearts fear that's not who he is anymore. And that's a tough place to be. But if that's where you are, you're still in good company. God's grace extends even there. God has given us his word to show us even our saints who are there, his people who are that far down, are not alone. Other godly people have been there, and God gives us now a lifeline of how to get out because we're now at the turning point. Now we're at verses 10 through 12. In fact, contrast those six questions. We're just going to jump. just want you to look in the text. Jump to verse 13. Those six questions up there to verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now how on earth do you get from asking these questions to that? The answer is found in verses 10 through 12. So let's take a look now. The pivot in this psalm, remembering God's character and deeds. Remembering God's character and deeds. And here those words, remember, show up again. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And so what, what happens here is a prolonged and extended and deep meditation on the character of God is what's going to make the change. And so the blanks here, in our day of trouble, we must remember to remember the Lord. Now, that's not something you've probably heard from me now for the first time, but it's a theme that comes up again and again in the Bible, that the place of memory and meditation plays in centering our heart and ministering to our spirit when we're discouraged. Um, this is over and over again in the Bible that, that meditation, returning to thinking about, remembering who God is and what he has done is frequently the best cure for discouragement. But this then sort of begs a question because as I was studying this psalm, what troubled me was clearly the change comes out of this remembering in verses 10 to 12. But if you paid attention, this isn't the first time in the psalm remember appears there is a remembering, we saw in point two, back in verses three to six. And so what I found confusing initially when I was studying this is how is it that in one instance he remembers, he meditates, he remembers, and it brings him lower. And yet here, a meditation, a remembering of who God is, is the cure. How can we explain the fact that two different times in this psalm he's said to remember and meditate on God and in one he goes lower and in the other he rockets out of discouragement? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Um, and uh, I just want to point out to you a very striking difference between these two sets of remembering, okay? So if you look up on the screen, what I've done is there's the text, and in red, I have put all the first person pronouns, I, me, my, right? And in blue are all the references to God and second person pronouns referencing God. I just want to look at the first six verses. There are 18 references to I, my, I, me, my, my, I, 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 my. You, you get the idea. And there are five references to God. So yes, he is remembering God, but he's remembering himself and God. He's very much in the picture. I want you to contrast that with the second remembering. What's missing? What, what's, what's not there the second time around? He's not there. The only first person pronoun in the entire second half of this psalm is what God is great like our God. And so, yes, there's two different rememberings of God, but there's a remembering that focuses on self. There's a remembering that, that my experiences with God and, and God being kind to me. And then there's just a getting yourself out of the picture and who is God? And that really makes the difference. I mean, when I saw that, when one of the commentaries pointed that out, I just thought, whoa. I mean, it's just startling, the difference of tone that takes over in this psalm. Um, one of the uh, writers speaking about it says this. The memories which at first brought only tormenting comparisons are resolutely re-examined, no longer colored with the present despair, but allowed to shine with their own light and to speak with their own logic. By the end of the psalm, the pervasive I has disappeared. And the objective facts of the faith has captured all the attention of Asaph. Or one other way of saying it. Um, the first verse says, I remember you, O God. That's in verse 3. So it seems that Asaph is thinking about God, which would be good. The verse goes on to show, however, that he is really thinking about himself. And that God has been hard with him and he has not been as close as he formerly was. In the second instance, he is out of the picture. And so it's not that it's wrong to remember the good times with God, but what we're seeing here is really the cure, the real medicine, the real heart um, transforming, heart changing, anchoring um, tool is to press on to who God is, his character. In fact, we'll see coming out of this that it's really that we must shift our focus from self to God alone. That's, there's the blank. We must shift our focus from self to God alone. Um, it, it's really who is this God who is and who made us? And what has he done? And what is his character like? He focuses, he says, I will remember your deeds. I will remember your wonders. I will ponder on your works, meditate on all your mighty deeds. I will appeal to this, he says in verse 10, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, which is to say, I gotta go deeper in my meditation on God. Sure, he was thinking about God earlier, but he's going deeper now to the core of who God is and what God has done. And that's where he finds the, the heart remedy that, that gives his heart joy as he begins to celebrate the character of God. Your, your notes... Um, point C. This is how we fight by faith for hope and joy. And this is the pattern laid out in Scripture. In Romans 15, verses uh, 4 and 13, if you want to turn there, Paul makes this explicit. 
in Romans 15. Verse 4. Here's a recipe for hope. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This refers to the entire Bible, the whole Old Testament, all those genealogies and chronicles, Deuteronomy, all of it. All of it was written for our instruction um, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the Bible that reveals the character of this God who is and who made us, the Bible that reveals his saving acts was written so that through endurance, we might have hope. Jump down a little bit. See the other ingredient in this hope recipe. There's the scripture revealing who God is. And we've got verse 13. May the God of hope. But just pause there. Isn't that a wonderful title? We worship the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound in hope. Through the scriptures, we abound in hope. And the way it works is this. For those of us who are born again, who have God's spirit living in us, when we become discouraged, we go back to remember who God is. We go back to remember what God has done. And the Holy Spirit, taking the seed of God's word, taking that truth, because Jesus says he doesn't testify about himself, he testifies about the Father and the Son. And so as we think about the Father and the Son, it's as though the Holy Spirit in our hearts is saying, yes, that's what he's like. Yes, remember. Remember his goodness. Remember his grace. Remember his love and compassion. And so as we meditate on who God is, the Holy Spirit wells up hope within us, countering our discouragement. And and that, that pattern can be seen over and over and over again in Scripture. Um, very clearly here. He just goes down, he goes down, he goes down. He says, wait, I, I, I need to meditate on who God is. I need to ponder on what God has done. I need to remember this God that I serve. And then, boom, he, he comes into praise and rejoicing, which now, if you flip over your notes to point five, celebrating who God is. Celebrating who God is, verses 13 to 15. And again, the, the contrast between 13 and 15 and 7 to 9 couldn't be greater as he just praises God's holiness, God's greatness, God's wonders and redemption. Your, your way, O oh God, is holy. Literally, your way is in holiness. Like the, the road God takes is the holiness road. His path is holiness. What God is great like our God the greatness of God. So God's holiness is now being celebrated. God's greatness and might is being celebrated. And then next, God's wonders. You are the God who works wonders. You're the miracle-working God. You're the God who controls creation, we'll see. That's where he's going to go eventually. And you make known your wonders, and you've made your might known among the peoples. With your arm, you with your arm redeemed your people the children of Jacob and Joseph. And he celebrates God's redemption. And secondly, and this is maybe more subtly in the text, we see God's great love for and choice of his people. Notice the contrast in verse 14. You were the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And God has made his might known among the peoples. 
But more importantly, and if you're a child of God, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So there's the people, and then there's your people. And surely Asaph, in saying that, is remembering God's choice of Israel. Again, if you're, if you're a child of God here today, it's not because you went out seeking for God, that, but that rather, when you were his enemy, he went out seeking for you. He chose you. He came for you. L- listen to this in Deuteronomy 7. And we're going to ask the question, why does God love us? Is it because we're so lovely? Is it because we're so wonderful? Why does God love us? Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. So we know it's not because of their might. It's not because of their greatness. It's not because of their power and their prestige that God placed his love upon them. I love this. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why why does God love Israel? Because the Lord loves Israel. That's that's the answer. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Why does God love... If if God's love for me depended on me, well, A, he wouldn't love me. And B, what if I change? But, but God's choice of Israel is just his free, sovereign love poured out on Israel. He didn't choose you because you were greater. He didn't choose you because of your might. But it was because the Lord your God loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so in there, his people, and that sweet sound of being his people, celebrating, celebrating how great God's love is and choice for his people. And then finally, celebrating God's salvation. Celebrating God's salvation. So what we saw there was a celebration of God's character, a celebration of God's gracious choice of Israel, but now he's going to go to a specific event. We've been talking about these wonders. We've been talking about these mighty deeds. We're going to look at one. We're going to go to the Exodus. We're going to go to the parting of the Red Sea. And he is going to just focus in on that event with awe and wonder, celebrating God's salvation. He's using poetic language here, but th- that's what's being pictured. is the parting of the Red Sea and the, the cloud that battled and kept Israel back with lightnings. That moment, that desperate moment where Israel's up against the sea and an army's coming on, and yet at the exact right moment, at the right time, the Lord sent salvation, made a way where there is no way. And he writes... When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so Asaph in his mind's eye is sort of there at that critical moment. And maybe he's picturing this moment because this was a moment where Israel was in despair. They felt like God had abandoned them. Did God bring us here to die? Moses, this leader who leads them out of Egypt, gets them up to the edge of the Red Sea. They've got water on one side and Pharaoh's army coming the other way. And where's God? Maybe he picks this specific part of the exodus because it is how he's feeling right now and and as he goes back with his mind's eye he remembers that 
God showed up at the right time. God fought the Egyptians with, with a cloud and lightnings and fire, holding them back. And then God did an amazing work of salvation. He parted the Red Sea and made a path where there was no path. And he led his flock like, like, like sheep. And you get that language in verse 20 of this tender shepherding. No, God isn't going to leave you to die. God hasn't abandoned you. He will show up at the right time. He will deliver you. He will make a way where there is no way. He will shepherd his flock. And he's going, aha. And, and, and that hope is springing up within him as Asaph celebrates in detail the exodus from Egypt. And you can go and read that account in Exodus 14. But I want to make some practical application from this for us. Because the exodus from Egypt, and this is point B, points to the cross. You see, for a, for a Jew living before the cross, you ask them, what is the great momentous deed that the Lord God has done? What is his great saving work? Well, the answer would be uniform. Well, it was delivering us from slavery from Egypt and making us into a nation and entering into sonship and an inheritance and entering into a covenant with him. Time and time again in the Old Testament, that's where Israel goes back for encouragement. They go back to the Exodus. That is their great saving event. And if you think about it, in the Exodus, there's a Passover lamb by the blood shed of an innocent lamb. Death passes over. A people in bondage and slavery are freed. Not only freed, but they leave with spoils. They leave with an inheritance. And they enter into a covenant with God as God makes an amazing amazing an amazing means of salvation. He delivers his people, then he brings them into a land. Hosea saying, out of Egypt I called my son, that this is also how Israel enters into a familial sonship relationship with God. And all of that points to and anticipates and sets up the cross. According to 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 9, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. This is, this is what the gospel announced. This is, this is a shadow of the gospel. That's why in the New Testament, you don't see Paul and the apostles going back to the Exodus, but they keep going back to again and again and again. It's the cross. God's people were in slavery to sin. This, this is the message of the gospel, that God's people were in slavery to sin, dead. And he sent a lamb to die for us so that death could pass over us. Sent Jesus to the cross, paying for our sins, living the life we could not live, freeing us from bondage to sin, from slavery, entering into sonship and daughterhood with God, entering into an inheritance, joined with him in a covenant that is unbreakable. That Jesus came, lived the life we could not live, died on the cross, rose again on the third day, and that by faith in his name, by trusting in him alone, not doing anything, we could be forgiven, and we could be freed from our slavery, and we could become sons and daughters of God, and we could enter into a covenant with him, and we could have an inheritance. That, that's, that's the gospel message. All of that made possible by what Jesus did, and all of that received by faith in the God who is. And so I think for us then, in our discouragement, you can go back to the Exodus. That's great. Asaph does. I'd encourage you to go back to the cross, which is what the Exodus anticipates. Where, where does Asaph go to find his greatest support and strength and encouragement when he is discouraged? He goes to God's great saving event. 
I'd encourage you to do the same thing, except now we know what the real, true, great saving event is, and that's the cross. And looking at the cross, I think then we can sort of answer these six questions more fully. And, and while we're doing this, turn to uh, Romans 8, would you? Turn to Romans chapter 8. And so when you think of the cross, and you think of... What happened to the thing? There we go. Oh, there it is. Okay. When you think of the cross, and you think of the gift of God's Son, ask these questions in the face of the cross, and you say, will the Lord spurn forever? No. In fact, he chose to spurn his own Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could be made near? It's impossible to think that the Lord will spurn forever. Um, will he never again be favorable? And you look to the cross. Is his steadfast love forever ceased? And again, it's blasphemous to ask in the face of the grace revealed by God at the cross, the love poured out at the cross. Are his promises at an end for all time? No, rather the cross is God's keeping of his promises. He promised to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the snake. He promised the virgin would conceive. He promised he would send his Messiah, his king, his son. And he did. So how much more can we take hope that he will keep the rest of his promises? Has God forgotten to be gracious? What is the crucifixion of the Son of God if not an act of grace and mercy? And has he in his anger shut up his compassion? No, rather he poured out the full measure of his anger on his son so that there is none left for those of us who are trusting in him by faith. There, there's no anger left. He absorbed it. It is finished. He removed it. And so, as you get ready to read and close with Romans 8, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up for the final song here now. Um, I just want to encourage you. The gospel... It's not something we ever move beyond. The gospel is, is not something we ever put down. But rather, it's the thing we go to time and time and time again to encourage us. And so, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I would encourage you to look to the cross, to look to the gospel, to look to Jesus, to find comfort for your soul, to find salvation, to look with faith, trusting in him. It's the same message for the believer and the unbeliever. If you don't know the Lord, look to God's great saving work. Pick up your Bible, read a gospel account. Look at who Jesus is and what he did and receive him by faith and have that sonship, have that adoption, have that freedom from slavery, that inheritance. Be covenanted to God in the gospel. And for those of us who do know the Lord, who are, who are born again, we can lose sight of this. And if you're wrestling with discouragement, if you're wrestling with where is God, I'd encourage you, go back, meditate, look to the cross. Find your encouragement from that. Um, I think it's very fitting, our, our, our closing song is, All I Have is Christ. And I think when we start to grasp the depth of God's love, it, it pours out in our hearts this joy. I'm just going to read Romans 8, 31 to the end, and then we will sing. The Apostle Paul reasoning the exact same way. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. What he's saying is if God gave us his son, he's looking back to that gift, then how can we possibly doubt he will hold any other good thing back from us? Who shall bring in a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Are you worried God's going to condemn you? Jesus died for you. The Father gave his son for you. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the answer to those questions. And, and it comes from looking at and looking at and looking again at and meditating on and soaking up the cross. God's gift of his son, the Lord Jesus' death for us. That, that's where we find our hope. We don't find our hope anywhere else. So that Paul says he boasts only in the cross. So please stand as we sing our final song.